Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efraim Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom, and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today, I have the great and distinguished honor to interview Dr. Susanna Helt, who is a bilingual school psychologist who works as a dean of students at Leiden High School District 212, an advocate, a lifelong learner, a world adventurer, a lover of books, and a photography enthusiast. I can't wait to learn all about all of this. Susie, who are you? Well, good morning. Um, good morning. So I am, yes, I am, like you said, uh, Susana Pichapochelt, and um, everybody calls me Susie. I am a proud daughter of immigrants. I'm a first generation, like college grad in my family. I'm a sister, I'm a tia, I'm a wife, I'm a caregiver, I'm a friend, um, and definitely a kid at heart. I have so much fun. I love to explore. Um, and I, I definitely like to be a person of, of giving, um, a person of kindness, and a person of willing to just want to understand and learn from the world and other people. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, Susie, um, can you walk us through your professional trajectory up to this point? Sure. Um, it's funny, every time I talk about this, I feel like I remember something new. Um, so I actually started as a nursing major and made it to my third year to clinicals. And then I was there and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't think I can do this. or like want to do this for years, right? Um, and it turns out, so part of being a sister, uh, I'm a sister of a young lady with individual significant disabilities and um, saw like that whole world, right? Of growing up in a hospital, going to different therapies, a lot of school meetings with my parents. Um, so I talked to someone that I've kept a relationship and was like, I have no idea what I'm doing with myself, help. Um, and decided to go work at a, th a therapeutic day school as a 101 aid um, out of the Northwest Special Education Organization. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to sit in on more individual education plan meetings, IEP meetings. Um, and as I'm talking to this previous teacher, you know, she sends me a list of all these things. And I was like, school psychologist, what is this? So I looked into it, explored it, realized my whole life, I've actually interacted with school psychologists without knowing it. Um, and it was at a great time where the world was really shifting from the traditional just testers in schools to a counselor, to a mental health advocate, to a liaison for communities and families and that school community component. So I applied to program and got in um, and went with it. So I was a bilingual school psychologist for 10 years. Um, mostly in high schools, a little bit of middle school. Um, I also did some contractual work for early childhood and preschool um, out by Minooka, so a little more south. Um, learned a lot from being able to collaborate with the little ones. Um, and just like their cuteness was distracting sometimes, but I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and then swinging back to the high schools, you know, I was very, very fortunate to work on some great student support teams where I had to just work with a lot of teachers and so many other leaders in schools as well. Um, and at my last position as a school psychologist, actually at Manny's High School, um, and even at one of my middle schools I was at, I just started seeing the work that some individuals who understood my role as a school psychologist valued my input and started asking that question, Susie, have you thought about doing something more, like going into leadership? And I was like, no, I'll be a school psychologist my whole life because I love it. Um, but then in uh, 20, about 20, I think 2018, 2019, mm -hmm. I, I took the plunge. And, you know, you reach a point, and at least from my experience, where I really, um, I loved what I was doing, cared so much about what I was doing. Um, but I wasn't necessarily challenged in what I was doing anymore. And I wanted to learn more. I'm like, how can I do more? How can I make a bigger impact for my students, for my families? And how can I further support, you know, my teachers who are in the classrooms and all the aides who are doing different things? Um, and so I, I went for it. I'm like, let's see, I'll, I'll do this leader, educational leadership program and figure it out from there. But 
from the beginning, I knew a dean of students was a great role, kept me with students, still allowed me to collaborate, but also allowed me to do that, that bigger impact component that I had been seeking. Beautiful, beautiful. Let me ask you a, a couple of follow-up questions. Um, sure. Um, is there anything, before I was an educator, I worked in hospitals as a secretary, and I know mm -hmm. that I brought a lot of lessons from, from that field to education. Is there one or yeah. two lessons you brought with you when you explore that area of nursing? Yes, actually. So two, gosh, I would say three of my jobs that I did before that. So my first job ever, I was a Captain Marshall at a laser tag place. Um, <laughs> so I always had to coordinate like parties, right? And um, I think I started there when I was like 16 or 17. Um, and, you know, parents would come and bring their kids like nine and under, like sometimes 20 at a time. And there's me, this teenager trying to control, right? So I learned early on to have a lot of patience um, and to hear out the requests of parents, right? And this, these were birthday party events, but I had to coordinate. Like I was the person who was put in charge of their children and ensure that they had a great time. Um, so I think one of the lessons from there was, um, you know, sometimes we would have a rough day at home or, you know, got some bad news. Um, or I just wasn't feeling it. And I learned quickly that my problems weren't going to go away and that I'd have to go in and put my best face with acknowledging that I was going through something, but I had to make people's day. Um, so I always kind of carried that with me. Um, and then I worked at in retail. I only lasted six months. So, you know, it just, I, I it worked happens, during the holidays. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> during the yeah. holiday season, right? But from there, I learned a lot of just... Um, multitasking right and the different personalities that you get coming into um it was at woodfield mall um so a lot of different people coming in right ensuring that i acknowledged all the customers that would come in the responsibility right of a of a cash machine right i think that part made me really nervous right in the organization of all that making sure that i followed all the lists all the protocols all the processes of opening and closing of during the store hours um so a lot of multitasking with a lot of memorization too um but that's where i also quickly learned that keeping busy at work and ensuring that if i didn't have like a task to do to use that time to learn a new skill um because it made the time go so much faster Beautiful. So what a great, that. what a great lesson, right? For children who, 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 mm -hmm. who, just like you and me, sometimes get a job and they're like, "Oh, I hate this. I can't wait to." <laughs> Instead of seeing it, you know, in here, I'm gonna learn some lessons that are gonna <laughs> guide me for the rest of my career. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah, so, so from there, from there, uh, in in the world of nursing, I, I specifically ask you uh, nursing because uh, when I did my dissertation, I, I mm -hmm. reviewed. Uh, how nurses and uh, firefighters and army officials, how they get trained to deal with emotions, right? Because yeah. it's, it's such a emotional task. Uh, any mm -hmm. lesson you brought from that world to your current world? Yeah, so in nursing, I think, um, you know, we all have all, our, all of our personal experiences. And since the age of four, I remember going to hospital so much with my parents because of the needs of my sister. Um, and being on that other side made me be so compassionate. Mm. And it also helped me to compose myself in those situations where, um, you know, as I was training, there's really positive outcomes, right, with healthcare. And then there's also those quick sad moments of grief and then there's also that middle the prolonged cases where families are really dealing or maybe feeling burdened feeling lost um feeling like there's no more hope um and that compassion and remembering that humanistic side um you know not just for my personal life but even from those other other jobs i did too of like I have to stay calm, like somebody needs to kind of take a step back and really hear out this family or this patient um, or the student, um, student, of course, I'm going to go back to student. But uh, at that point, even our group of our, our class, too, though, um, that really, you know, maybe hadn't experienced something like that. Um, and I, I learned, too, that as I was in those clinicals and working with my supervisor nurse or the supervising team, um, just how much families for as simple as, as a kind 
get um i can never say this word gesture gestures yeah gesture yeah um goes a long way um you know or just offering a cup of water a little coffee offering you know to come in and check in on the patient um you know and understanding that outside of that that hospital room these families were going through so much more um so compassion and that kindness and empathy is something that i definitely carried over um you know from the little kid crying at a birthday party um from someone not being able to return something because they um you know it surpassed or we just couldn't return it like all of those things for silly as they may sound in an everyday world and functioning they really do um become bigger um in different settings so that's kind of what I've, I used a lot in nursing, and I even still do t- till this day. For sure. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you become a, a school psychologist for mm-hmm. 10 years before you go into the deanship. Can you walk us through uh, lessons learned uh, through those 10 years of, as a bilingual psychologist? Yeah. So, um, Wow, lessons learned. You obviously, and I, you know, um, don't want to speak for you, but I feel like a lot of us um, in any fields, when we talk about, you know, our trajectories of how we got there, it's like they didn't teach us that in school. Sure, we didn't read this in the book, right? That's why we have this podcast because (laughs) you know you get to learn how people get to uh, accomplish things. um, Yeah, you know, the case studies only. Yeah, absolutely. So going in, um, again, having that lens of being on the other side of the table of sitting in IEP meetings, um, I didn't, I learned that there were going to be many situations where I always, I learned very early on to speak up for what I believed what was right in, but not just because it was my personal opinion, but because it was ethically and legally correct. And I also had the facts for a certain recommendation or the justification for why maybe I wanted to do a certain component when working with a student or working with a classroom or why I made a suggestion to a family or why I was um, making the recommendation of a certain determination in an IEP meeting. Um, And from all of that, I quickly learned how many people go against you in these decisions that I was trained to do, right? so really learning how to be willing to to understand that other perspective as to why maybe a disagreement is happening or why a certain request is occurring um, and accepting. And that's really hard, right? Because if you really believe in something or based on your training, you know it's the correct thing to do or the next logical step, that sometimes there will not be closure. Um, and all you can do is advocate for that piece, right? And, and learned early to to document um, anything that I've done or anything that I've suggested as well. So that, you know, I I've went into the fields of, afraid of making decisions. I'm like, oh my God, I'm this adult who's like being trusted and like the expert at the table. And that's scary. Um, so learning that. And then I think the, the other thing I have learned through being a bilingual school psychologist is being ineffective and productive collaborator. Um, I believe a lot of times when we talk about collaboration, there's a lot of just talking back and forth, a lot of conversation. But what really is the end goal? What are we really trying to solve? And what goals are we trying to achieve? Um, So agendas and goals with actual like dates um, is something that helped me so much within my teams. Um, and I learned that from a, a team member as well, um, because I would go in there and, you know, make these goals and make these suggestions. I'd be like, I'm going to get this done. And then time flies. <laughs> By the time Absolutely. I get back, I'm like, okay, gotta do this. Um, and I think too, one of the, one of the ones that I always go back to is as a bilingual school psychologist, you know, I didn't have the common trajectory of, of having my own classroom. Um, and I, it used to hurt me at first when that would be thrown at me. Well, you know, mm-hmm. you didn't have your own classroom. You don't know what it's like to you don't know. room, mm-hmm. right? And it's just like, you're right. I don't know. I've, I've learned to feel comfortable at accepting that truth and acknowledging that they are correct. I've never had to run my own classroom. I've never had to oversee 25 to 38 little human bodies or teenage bodies in the classroom and manage that and teach and all of the 
things and tasks that come with that. Um, but I've learned to value that I do come in with a different lens that I have been in a variety of educational settings and even outside of the traditional schooling where I can come in, right, and be a new pair of eyes, new pair of listening ears for that teacher or assistant or speech pathologist or assistant principal or principal and be like, hey, hear me out. Like, this is how we're managing this classroom or how this teacher is choosing, you know, to, to manage a classroom. And there's nothing wrong with it, right? But if you're asking for help, then be willing and open-minded to also hear out what I'm seeing, right? And what can Amen. I offer for you? Amen. Thank you for sharing. That's awesome. So um, you bring this bag of tools and you become a mm -hmm. dean. Tell us about that process. Uh, I think that uh, that position of dean is so key, especially in this world where uh, both children and parents are hooked on their phones and uh, they don't get to talk about often, you know, like, like human values, like uh, what you yeah. should not do, what lines you should not cross. So Absolutely. Uh, what lessons have you learned about uh, being in this position with all the experience that you bring? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I was interviewing for Dean positions, uh, one of the common questions I received in interviews would be similar with that classroom component, like you're a school psychologist. You've never been in a classroom, right? So what, what now? Like, what do you bring so differently? Um, and to be honest, I am so grateful for the many difficult situations um, on teams with parents, with school communities I've had. Um, and what I've learned from those experience of like all the pos like the so many possibilities that can happen in challenging situations. Um, and I would say my most challenging situations have always been with adults. Um, so bringing that aspect into the Dean role and bringing those skills right of they're really counseling skills, right? Yes. And they're really conversation mm -hmm. skills and applying those when I am working with students or with teachers who are questioning like, hey, so-and-so keeps using their phone. Hey, so-and-so did this, right? And as much as I tell the students and the teams that I work with currently, um, as well as like all the adults, like there's always at least two versions to a story. Mm -hmm. I am not in your classroom. So if I was in your classroom, if I was a fly in the wall, what would I have heard? What would I have seen? What would other people be doing? What would I have, you know, what would be this interaction? Um, and same thing with the students. And I think with, this, with the students, you know, I'm mean, in high school, I think a lot of times, and I have been told a few times, like, wait, you're asking me what happened? And I'm like, yeah, it's important that I know your perspective. Like, you know, what did you experience? What was said? You know, what happened before you ended up here in my office or in my space? Um, and I, I have realized that throughout the years, right, like I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm lucky where I'm at the age where, I mean, phones didn't exist, the internet didn't exist. Um, and it makes me appreciate, right, like those hands-on skills of taking that extra step of actually having to talk to someone. Um, so I tell students too, and I tell parents like, hey, I'm at a school, but these skills that we're talking about or this issue is a learning opportunity. Right? And having Amen. a restorative conversation about what actually happened, what are we learning from it? Um, and I'm always upfront with the students and families, like, I have to hold you accountable, right? That's why I need to understand your role as well, so that I can make an informed decision of how we're going to move forward and how are we going to work with this together. Um, it's been lovely. It's worked great for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, one more follow-up question. You mentioned about restorative conversations. Um, mm -hmm. This is a, this is a, a topic that, that is everywhere, yet is, is, is quite difficult to grasp for generations of educators like you and me Absolutely. who went to school mm -hmm. and it was like the expectation was that you will teach and the students will learn and go home and do their homework mm -hmm. and parents will support them and, and kids will be respectful when they come to school, right? So restorative practice comes and, and some educators uh, think, well, wait, I'm here to teach English or math or science. I'm mm -hmm. not here to restore the peace. Uh, can, <laughs> yeah. you, can you uh, um, talk about uh, the importance of restorative conversations, restorative practices, and how this has influenced uh, perhaps your work? 
Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned it perfectly, right? Like, um, I feel like a lot of, um, you know, either veteran educators or people like us who have been trained in a certain way, um, they're like, well, my job is not to restore the peace. You know, my, my job is not to pass around a talking stick. You know, I'm a teacher. I'm a group leader. This is what I do. Um, and so I always, one, I had to educate myself, right? Because I, I think I heard so many theories about what it was, right? And what we're supposed to be doing. And it, what it really comes down to is another common topic of relationships, right? And um, the reality is that we all come from different spaces, from different backgrounds, from different stories, from different journeys and trajectories of how us as adults have gotten there, but also how our students and families get to us and how they come into our schools. Um, when I am talking with adults, I always mention, you know, now as um, a dean, right, or being in a leadership role, um, depending on who I'm talking to, you know, I always give the example of like, you know, when you come into my office, like you want my full attention, you want me to hear you out, like your perspective, your reasoning as to why. How do you think your students walk in every day if they had a rough day or if they're having a great day? Um, what do you think they want to feel when they walk into your room, right? I typically get a lot of like, well, it's a classroom. They should be ready to learn. They should be able to come in, mm -hmm. right? And I'm like, well, have you ever had a situation where you're sitting in the parking lot or you had a bad moment, you know, either with your child or your dog wasn't listening to you when you had to get him for a walk because you had to get to work, right? Like how does, how do those things impact your overall mood when you have to come into work and teach a classroom? So if we have a student if they have a great day, they're going to come in and do their thing, right? But if you have a group of students who maybe missed their bus, maybe they missed a ride, maybe they didn't get breakfast that day, woke up late and it ruined their day, right? Um, how do those very basic conversations um, impact that? And I always am very intentional of stating, like, you can't just ask or just say good morning. Actively listen mm -hmm. and actively respond, right? And again, that's where kind of like those therapeutic skills come in of that summarization component, right? Like mention something, it doesn't matter how tiny it, it is, um, but also bearing in mind that you get them every single day for a whole academic school year, I get them once in a while, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so that restorative component, right, of that everything is a process, and that you wanna, if whether it's a positive or a negative interaction, right? Because you're gonna read, we, you know, research shows we mostly remember the negative things that come mm -hmm. into our life. Yeah. How do you take that negative into a positive memory that you acknowledge that something happened? Whether it's a small group, individual student in your class, right? We remember more how people make us feel, um, and that's that's important. Um, so those are a lot of the conversations that that I've had, like even in the large group, right? Of really being intentional in our um, conversations and in our interactions with our students, but with the adults too that we interact with every single day. You're, you're not gonna like everybody and not everybody's gonna like you, Amen. but how do we um, learn to live in that same space and how do we learn to just be nice to each other and come in and do what we do best? That's awesome. Thank you so much, Lucy. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Mm -hmm. So, um, like in Back to the Future, if you could go back to any of the positions you have held, what would the Susie of today tell the Susie of back then? Wow. Um, I think... I think I would have to tell myself that um, I think fear is the biggest thing that I experienced um, for the future. Um, and I think fear is one of those emotions that are not easy to, to admit, but I, I'm, I'm just naturally a feeler. I'm an emotional person. Um, I could be very composed, but once I'm in a space that's comfortable, like I'll lose it. Like I've cried in my office. I've cried on the drive in the drive. Me home too. 
certain situation. I'm frustrated. I'm mad. Um, I just figure it's healthier than like throwing something. Um, but fear, I think that if I can go back to any position that I would go in, I would remind myself that I'm going to have some really difficult and uncomfortable experiences and that I'm going to be afraid, but that at the end, I'm going to be able to work through those, that there are going to be people who come along the way um, who genuinely care, right? Um, and of course, right, you live and you learn. I, I now accept that. Now my parents tell me I have, I do go back and tell them like, I know you told me so, you know, so Sanita, <laughs> you said so. Um, and I acknowledge that now, but if I, I could go back, I would, I would really tell myself to not be afraid of what I'm capable of, of and to not be afraid of what the reactions or the responses are from other people, because they don't define me, their experiences that you go through and that you learn from. And how do you do better with that? Right. How do you improve? Um, and I think for the good early on years, I was just, maybe people didn't know it, maybe I didn't show it, but there would be times where I would just be terrified of a certain case of a certain situation. And I look back now and I'm kind of like, that was so silly. Completely <laughs> <laughs> <Like>, okay. <laughs> the world goes on. Right? Yes. Amen. <laughs> Great reflection. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. So uh, reading books is such a luxury. And uh, I bet that uh, you have a favorite uh, for a fiction and a favorite for a nonfiction, if you had to give them to a loved one, what would yes. those two books be? <laughs> this is so funny. I had such a hard time. I came up to my bookshelf. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what do I pick? Um, <laughs> if I had to pick one, and I actually went based on like, what is the book that I have most gifted? Um, I actually have to thank a friend who gifted me this book. Um, so growing up, I didn't have pets. I actually wasn't a kid who ever wanted a pet. Like people find that odd, but I just was like, no, like then I have to take care of it. And there's a responsibility, right? Um, <clears throat> so she actually gifted me The Art of Racing in the Rain by Garth Stein. I believe it mm. came out in 2006, 2007 or eight. It's a movie now. Read the book first if you haven't mm. read it. Um, it's a fictional book and it's from the perspective of a dog. And his owner is, um, is a race car driver, professional race car driver who has a family. Um, and the first time I read it, I just thought it was really, really good. I'm like, this is amazing. Like the end, I'm a crier. I like cried. I was like, oh my goodness, right? Like the lessons um, from that perspective of a dog. And it was just so creative and so intelligent in the way that it was written. Um, and I, I, I love like racing and like seeing all that and, you know, experiencing it and all those crazy experiences. So I'm like, this is really cool. Right. And, um, I've read it a couple times and, um, I read it in between another time and every time I read it, I pick up something new. I mean, even though it's fiction, um, there's different experiences that the dog goes through with its owner and the family and the family is composed of a husband and a wife, and then eventually a child. Um, and how those different life changes and milestones impact the pet and why the dog, Enzo, um, I'm sorry, that is not the dog's name. I'm thinking of the whole book now because I'm getting so excited. <laughs> um, but um, why, the, why the, the dog wants to now experience in a future life, the human experience. Um, I reread the book, uh, my sister passed, my youngest sister, and I've always been a person who believes in signs. So I reread this book uh, because loss happens in the book as well. And I don't think I ever felt so much when I read a book um, when I did it this time. And, and it's right, a dog's perspective, like who, how cool would it be to go into like an any pet snake, like brain and figure that yeah. out. But that was, if you haven't had the opportunity the art of racing in the rain. Fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, wow. Uh, and what about a uh, nonfiction? Oh man. So this one was tough. I don't read a lot of nonfiction books. A lot of the ones that I do read are, um, you know, recommendations are also gifted. And um, I kind of went between two, a memoir, um, because it was The Glass Castle. Um, she is a, a journalist by Janet Walls. Um, and it was the first book of a memoir that I read that was 
written a storytelling of a successful person who was just so vulnerable in sharing their childhood experiences. Um, and essentially, the way I understood it the first time I read it was kind of like living in this lie without knowing that um, there was like mental health component that impacted you know, her upbringing and how those experience helped her become this journalist and then gave her the courage to write her story about it. Um, so I've read it a couple times as well. It was also the first, um, like nonfiction memoir book I read that actually um, was written by what I would say is a white woman. Um, everything else I've read has been like immigrant stories and those experiences. And it, it really was an eye opener for me. And I, I read it as, as an adult. Um, so getting that perspective helped me a lot. And I would say my second favorite um, that I have here as a auto um, was Michelle Obama's Becoming. Mm. Um, my mom actually gifted it to me. Um, and it wasn't one that I was like, I'm going to go out and buy it and read it. Like, but again, as an adult, right? Um, and obviously Chicago, from Chicago, I've never left. And um, it just, seeing that perspective, right? Like you always see, um, you know, like Michelle Obama or anybody who's really well known and they have this life. Um, and we forget, right? I think it's so easy to forget that they have their own lives and their own experiences and, and what's that like? And I, a lot of her experiences really resonated with me and, you know, like living in little, like little village and then Bridgeport and then like the things that she would mention, it just like took me back. And even as an adult, right, the challenges that you face with yourself, with your partner, um, with your family and how you make certain choices and how they impact you, whether they be positive or negative. Um, so that's one that I I've, you know, it's more recent, yeah. um, but I read it quickly because I was just so hooked by it. And I'm so grateful that it was gifted to me because it, it got me to read it um, and, and get that perspective. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, Susie, uh, who is or who are hmm. your biggest influences? Oh, wow. My number one, number one um Gosh, for as long as probably since about sixth grade. Um, my youngest sister, um, Joanna, we called her Jojo, um, who passed away, as I mentioned, uh, she had cerebral palsy, nonverbal, nonambulatory, and um, depended on us for everything. Actually, tomorrow um, would be her 33rd birthday. Um, so it's kind of, you know, one of those weeks where I have a lot of roller coaster of emotions. Um, but, you know, I think too, um, working in schools as well, you hear all of these uh, different perceptions or stereotypes of individuals who are nonverbal. Um, and I think many times it's saddened me to hear what people believed of um, individuals with disabilities, especially those who depend on other people. Um, but I learned very early on um, as a kid, right? I, I didn't understand like, why does my family have to be different? Um, but she, really influenced me to use my voice because I have one to be grateful for my physical ability to be able to get up and get myself a cup of water, be able to, you know, scratch a little itch. Um, and seeing her and my, my family, you know, kind of go through like the whole education component, like really once I realized what a school psychologist was, um, and being in education, I reason like, I could be that person. I'm, you know, I'm bilingual. I can help like all of my non-English speaking, you know, but Spanish speaking families. I can educate them. I can inform them. And anytime I worked in a, in a school with any student, um, but especially, you know, the life skills or transition programs or whatever we call our programs, right, that do provide education and services to this very specialized population, I always went into those classrooms and I still do wherever I go. How would I want people that I entrusted my sister to, to treat her? Um, so a lot of my work, my every day, there isn't a day that doesn't go by where something comes across. And that's what I think of. I think about her a lot. Um, other people that have influenced me, obviously my parents, um, you know, were just very, had have very high expectations, sacrificed a lot for me and my sisters to be here and be successful, how, whatever anybody's definition of success is. Um, but for me, um, it was always, you know, I have an opportunity to get an education and what am I going to do with that? Um, so they're, they're huge. And I think as a, as a professional, um, 
my sixth grade teacher, who I actually still keep in touch with, wow. Connie B. Ornstead, um, she was the first white female teacher I ever had. Um, and she believed in me from the moment she met me. I don't know what it was, but she just made this connection with me over, I think it was over Mickey Mouse because I love <laughs> Mickey and had the stream of going to Disney's probably. I think I do remember a conversation about that, but she just always pushed me and challenged me. Um, and thinking back and reflecting throughout the years, um, she doesn't live in Illinois, but we've kept a great relationship. We see each other just really always had me thinking, right? Had these wheels turning like Susie, what's going to be your next step? What are you going to do? Um, and she was just like a model. Like she just in her classroom, it was always very, again, very welcoming, like very genuine, like colorful and fun. And if, you know, some of us were misbehaving, like she just had this way of like not making you feel bad about yourself and like, what could you do differently next time? So talk about restorative, right? Like she was yes. already doing that without knowing that's what it was. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, so those are like have been my biggest influences. Um, and currently I have to talk about um, Dean Nelly Diaz at Maine East High School. She challenged me to be a better school psychologist, to be a better educator. Um, and if it wasn't for her, I probably would not have pursued going into educational leadership. Wow. Um, she's a shaker and a mover and inspiration. Um, and never asked us or my team to do anything that she wasn't willing to do. And that's something that I've carried over as well. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. uh, Susie, as um, on imposter syndrome, we all have this. <laughs> we all deal with this, right? We all feel like, oh, I'm not good enough or I can't do that. That's too difficult for me. Uh, how do you address this? Oh, man, um, this is this is difficult. So this is um, actually something I've been thinking a lot about. So earlier this year, um, they did like a, a leadership book, like book club study mm -hmm. um, at my job. And we read um, Lead From Where You Are by Joe Sanfilippo. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that stood out to me, because I am so guilty of this, and I've been working so hard of doing this, is the I'd always be like, well, I'm just a school psychologist. I'm just. And. I remember I read that, those paragraphs, I had to have at least read them like five times because I was like, oh my goodness, like this is me all the time. I'm just this, you know, I'm just a dean at a school. And there would be times where, there are times, right, where I sit in a room and I just like, why me? Like, why am I here? Um, and I've really learned to embrace you know, we, there's always these processes, right? Like we have to go to school, we have to get our diplomas, but you can't just get the job with the diploma. You actually have to sit for the exam and pass it and mm -hmm. get nervous about all of that. Um, and when I think back of, to me as a little kid and where I am now, I realize that it's been my own doing that has gotten me where I'm at, that I have earned my space at a table, that I've earned my space in a room, that I've earned my interview. It's not because somebody did something for me. Sure, maybe people gave me recommendations and things like that, but I've I've done my own work for myself and have accepted the failures that I've learned from to do better and to learn from that. Um, so when when after reading the book, I was like, I need to stop doing that to myself. Like Susie, like you are you girl, <laughs> you know you did it. She said, Pula, like you're here, yes. and what more are you gonna do? Um, I think now too, when I talked with students, though, I really like use that with them, right? Like I do have students come into my office. It's like, no, miss. Well, it's because I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just a grocery worker right now. And I'm like, you're not just that. I'm like, I can come in there and eat something, right? Like you're the person who's helping someone else. Like do not minimize what you're currently doing because that little bit that you're doing or big that you're doing could be such a huge impact for somebody else. And so many times I think that's what's difficult too in our field and as well as in other fields, right? That we do so much and many times you, we don't see that immediate gratification. So I've, I've been very intentional. I like to journal a lot and I've been intentional in journaling about something that I would have impacted me if I was on the other side and the hope that one day someone will look back and say, you know what? I don't remember her name, but this lady with the big old earrings or the heels <laughs> said this or did this, right? Um, so reminding myself, right, that I've, I've earned my spot. I've earned my space. And I think there are, I've had conversations where some people don't agree with that. Um, but 
that's what's important to me. That's what keeps me going. So I have to remind myself, like, you did it, Susie. Like, you're here and you can do more. Like, what are you going to do next? Amen. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's awesome. What a great message also for, uh, like, like for students who often come with such a lack of, of mm -hmm. confidence and nobody has talked to them that if, if with a little bit of effort, they can accomplish so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So let's talk about productivity. Uh, all successful people behind the scenes do all these marometas and, and going around <laughs> organizing, right? Before we go in the stage and everybody sees the, the, the beauty, the end product. So let's talk about uh, how do you get organized to get things sure. done and still live a fructiferous life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've gotten better about not using 10 million post-it notes. <laughs> you might go to them like, where's my post-it? Um, I'm definitely, um, I know I'm, I'm a visual person and I also do so well when I write. Like I remember so much when I physically write, not taking a little note on my phone. I forget to look at the note. I forget to look at the reminders on my phone. Um, so to be productive, um, obviously I have to keep my work calendar. So that helps me right when I'm there at work. So I keep that. Um, but then uh, the extra stuff that I do for myself, I no longer keep separate um, physical calendars of my personal and work life because the one time I did that, I triple booked myself <laughs> Sure. and mm -hmm. got nowhere. Um, so I have a list, like I have one notebook that I have and each day it's a different color maybe highlighted in different colors as well for different things, because I just remember, I do so much better remembering things that I have to do if I write them down. There's something about a pen or a pencil on a paper and me, the physical act that I will be somewhere and I'll be like, oh, that's right. I remember I have, I have to do this. David, um, Allen, David Allen says that the, the quote is, I believe, the brain is great to generate ideas, but terrible to keep them. So that's why yes. he says the first step is capture your ideas. Yeah. Um, so I definitely do a lot of idea capturing. Um, and I do, um, I, I like to write my ideas too with like a date, like that I, I do it. Um, and if I have a due date, I always start off with the due date because then I know like, Smart. hey, I have to get this done by, by a certain day or else I forget to look at the due date and that's just not going to be helpful. Um, so that's what I do. Um, and I make sure, you know, I've, Oh, I've been so much better about boundaries. Um, I definitely, I have to admit it, I'm someone who I would stay till seven o'clock at work mm -hmm. to do stuff because then I would be like, that way I could just go home and do nothing. But then I come home and I've given my best. I've given all my energy to my work and not to the space where people are excited. Not that people aren't excited to see me at work, but you know, to my family when I go visit my parents or something like that. Um, so I've been so much better about setting those boundaries and accepting that I'm not going to get everything done in a day. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm so much more productive if I actually take a break than trying to like push through something. Cause then I'm like going la la land, dreamland. <laughs> um, so that's important. Like having a cutoff time for myself. Like I will tell myself, like if I'm going to stay, I will look at the clock and I'll be like, all right, I'm going to give myself one hour. And in one hour, you can't look at your phone. You can't check your email. You have to tackle this and get as far as you can. Good. Beautiful. So yeah. uh, when you have to send messages to the mm -hmm. people that you work with, educators and stuff like that, um, yeah. did you just sit down and write it? Do you think about it? Like what is your process of communicating with others, especially, um, I'm assuming that a lot of cases sometimes is very sensitive because a teacher mm -hmm. might have sent a student and the teacher feels offended and you have to somehow restore, like how, what is the magic behind the, behind that email? Yeah. So. I would say that if it's a sensitive situation, I have to admit that I don't typically respond immediately because That's when good. I read that email, it comes with emotion and I have then my own personal reaction, right? It's my personal reaction to reading the message 
rather than taking a step back of actually taking in that message and being like, okay, where is this individual coming from? What is the situation? Um, and how do I respond in a way that is validating what they're saying, but that also justifies how I have to respond, right? Um, and I've learned that because in other situations, I've like started to type a response and then I read it, I'm like, oh, oh, Susie, no, do not send that. <laughs> You know, because it's a reactive response. Mm -hmm. So I do, um, I always, I'm pretty good of, I make a point to look at things, you know, like I'll scan it, I'll scan emails, because a lot of them are, you know, they're electronic messages now. Um, so I will scan those and just kind of, I have to prioritize. Like, that's the way to get things done, too. Like, I have to prioritize situations. Obviously, if it's an urgent matter, I have to act. Um, but if it's something that I know can wait, I have to give myself space to think about and process to make a decision that's going to be informed, um, but that's also going to be supportive. And I also believe in the importance of giving the other person who's having the experience to have a few of the breathing space, yes. right? Because when something happens, like we react, we can get fumed, we can, you know, and then also giving them the opportunity to process a situation is important as well. So I definitely do that in my practice when responding to messages and communicating things out. Yes, absolutely. Let me ask you, uh, when uh, I see you recently completed your doctorate, um, what lessons learned about the dissertation process and what <laughs> advice do you have for some for whoever is out there you know yes. starting chapter one and they're like what the heck i'm doing <laughs> what is yeah. your advice yes i think um i guess if, if i had to do it all over again okay um it's actually not even my own advice it's my it's the advice that my tier gave me and i was like why didn't you give me this advice sooner um <laughs> I really wish, I think I focused so much on the process, right? Like you focus on the, on the chapters and what you need to do. Some chapters are easier to write notes. For example, chapter three methodology. Oh Lord, that was, that was hard for me. Like, it's just, it's just so dull. I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. like, how do I make this sound exciting? Right. Um, my suggestion is, and it sounds like a lot, but a half hour of day whether it's writing down your ideas or typing them up, it doesn't have to sound great. It doesn't have to sound beautiful, grammatically correct. But when I started doing that, I was so much more effective with my writing process. Um, because there were times where I would sit down and be like, I'm gonna block out half the day to write. And then I'd be sitting there and I'd be like, well, how do I wanna say this? Oh, the other day I had this idea. But as soon as I started, actually, like I just kept a pad of paper. I actually still have that pad of paper. Um, where I literally would write, like, I would write like chapter one, like put my little note, like remember to know like this sort of data or remember to mention this methodology that was considered. That helped me so much then. Um, and it eventually it evolved to me once the actual pr writing price process happened and it, you know, you have to do all the drafts and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I started doing that all in there. Um, and then I would go back and I would make it sound more professional, more intellectual, more flowy. Um, that was huge. Um, you know, and basically really being intentional, dedicating half hour, an hour if possible, a day to doing that and getting it done. And don't feel bad about sounding repetitive because that's going to happen. And a lot of it does involve that. Um, so there's nothing wrong with repetitiveness. It's just a matter of getting that message across and what you're researching and why in your outcomes and what do you do with those outcomes, whether they were what you wanted or not. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's talk a about uh, other activities. I see you mentioned uh, <laughs> in your Twitter about traveling and photography. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah. So um, this is funny because recently I made my sixth grade dreams come true. Sixth grade, again, with Miss Bjornstad um, was the year that um, I really got into history and she just had this way of teaching. And I remember I got assigned to Egypt. Oh my God, I fell in love with Egypt. And I remember telling her one day I'm gonna make it to Egypt. Mm. And when I do, I'm gonna tell you. And I made a passport to Egypt. We had to make like a project. Wow. She's really good about you showing your mastery of, of skills and learning in creative ways. And I made a passport. I still have that passport. So I went to Egypt, took about 25 years, but I made it to Egypt this past December. Wow. Um, I took a picture in front of a pyramid with my Egypt passport from sixth grade and send it to her. Um, so that's something I've always, in sixth grade, I, I, I learned that I wanted to see the world. You know, my family was not, like traveling was just not a thing 
one, we couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. But I remember coming home and telling my parents, like, I want to see the world. Like, there's so much out there. And I don't, no quiero que me cuenten, right? Like, yeah. I don't want people to tell me, I want to experience it and see it and smell it and feel it. Um, so I've been, I'm very blessed that I've been able to do that for a couple of, of years now um, with my husband um, and just adventuring and seeing that. And um, I also wanted to be a photographer in high school. I took darkroom photography. So for years, mm. actually, even in undergrad, all four years, I did darkroom photography. Um, obviously, everything's more digital now, um, but it's something that I always enjoyed. There's just something about like being able to capture a moment or a landscape and just freezing it in time um, and being able to go back and look at it. Um, I love the idea of just... Um, like things, right? And a lot of the photography that I do hobby-based is the things that I know I'm not gonna be able to see every day. Mm -hmm. um, just being able to have it. And I love, I love the black and white because I love to think about like, if I go to an art museum or an art gallery, photography gallery, I do like to think about like, you know, what kind of day was this? Like what was the tree? Like, was it fall? Was it summer? You know, what color are these flowers? Like, I love the thinking process too, of just being able to escape in a photograph and having that memory um, and really taking me back to a moment. Um, so when friends ask me to, to photograph or I take their picture, um, I love the candid photography. Um, I'll do post photography for people, but the candidness, right, of the way somebody is looking at something or looking at someone or the way somebody is looking at each other. There's just something, I don't even know what the word is, but like there's just something I feel like chills sometimes when I look back and I'm like, wow, like I took that and now I can gift this to someone and surprise them with this moment. Um, wow. Yeah, love Fascinating. it. Fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much. Susie, this has been such a great conversation. Uh, any other thoughts? you would like to share with the listeners of the show? I think like other thoughts I would share, um, something that um, I think maybe um, unsolicited advice, because <laughs> um, I wish I would have done this for myself. I really wished I would have um, lived my life or made decisions, whether personal or professional, without regrets. Um, that's been huge for me. There's been times where I've thought back and I'm kind of like, why didn't I do that? You know, I can't go back now and do it. Right. Or there's been times where I do something and I'm like, oh man, that did not go as planned, but now I know. Right. Mm -hmm. So having no regrets, I think is, is huge. And like in all aspects of life, if you want to do something, do it while you can. Um, you know, if you're, if you have the ability to do so, because you just don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I don't know how I'm going to be a few years from now. And I don't ever want to have to look back and be like, why didn't I try? Like, why didn't I give that a shot? Why didn't I do, why didn't I call that someone to thank them? Why didn't I go for that walk or, you know, had the chance to go visit someone and I didn't. Um, yeah, definitely a life without regrets in all aspects. Beautiful. What a great advice. Thank you so <laughs> much, Susie. This has been a great time. I have learned so much from you. I appreciate you took a little bit of time to share your wisdom and your productivity. <laughs> Thank you. And have a happy Saturday, okay? You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Eparim Martinez. Chulu. And I love that production, chill out.